Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, and I'm sitting in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are allowing us to be into their homes this evening. Now, Pastor, we've been discussing Bible prophecy. I believe this is the 13th week that we have been on this series and a lot of very useful information. I know in the end of last week's episode, we begin to discuss the Lord's second coming, and that topic was raised. Can we be sure that he's coming back, or is that just more of a historical urban legend? I think last time we started to deal with this question, just before we got, um, not interrupted, but someone asked a question, uh, we stated that this is one of the clearest biblical doctrines you can find uh, in the New Testament. There's absolutely no uh, uncertainty as to our Lord's second coming. You think it's something literal that can be seen? Well, in, in terms of the second coming, um, when we hope we'll get a chance to do, deal with it a little bit more, uh, there's no doubt that the Bible makes it clear that when he comes, every eye shall see him. Uh, that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. And then when we look at Matthew chapter 24, which I'll let you read shortly, uh, we're told that after tribulation of those days, then would the Son of Man come with all of his glory. So there's no doubt that when he returns, it's going to be a visible return. But to um, substantiate the fact that there is this this doctrine, this teaching, um, is not only biblical, but uh, this is a great certainty, um, just want to point out a few matters that would probably help to cement the idea of how valid and how sound this biblical doctrine is. If you were to go to your Bible and uh, check the uh, concordance, you'll find that uh, this particular doctrine is, is referenced over 1,800 uh, times, actually 18485 times. It's mentioned uh, 1527 times in the Old Testament and 318 times in the New Testament. Um, not only that, if you go to the New Testament books, there are 27 New Testament books, but you'll find reference to the Second Coming in 23 of those New Testament books. Uh, that in itself says a lot. There are um, 260 chapters in the New Testament, and uh, the Second Coming is mentioned 318 times, almost once per chapter in the Bible. That gives you an idea of how exhaustive this doctrine is taught in Scripture and how extensive it is. The other thing is that um, every reference to the First Coming, there are eight references in the New Testament uh, to a Second Coming. 
And so again, the, the whole body of, of, of data that is there and the frequency with which this doctrine is mentioned gives you an idea that this is a doctrine that you, 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 there's, no, there's no doubt about it, no question about it. There's such great certainty of it. Can you share that last statistic? I'm still wrapping my brain around it. I said for every time the, uh, the, gospel, the first coming is mentioned in Scripture, it is, uh, the second coming is mentioned eight times. Wow. So that gives you, an, as a matter when you go into the prophetic writings, you'll find again the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is coming, uh, the day of judgment is coming. You do find in the Old Testament reference to the fact that he's coming, it's sporadic. You know, uh, Micah chapter um, 2, verse 5, that he's coming um, from Ephrata in Bethlehem. Uh, the other thing is that for every reference in the of the atonement, uh, there are at least two references to the second coming. And the atonement is a predominant doctrine in Scripture. But yet, in terms of mention, the second coming is mentioned uh, twice as, as much as the atonement is mentioned. That should give you an idea of how um, how prominent this doctrine is uh, in Scripture. So I would, I would say to you that when you look at all of those factors, uh, there should be no doubt in anybody's mind that the Bible emphasizes that the Lord is going to return and he's going to come back in his glory. If you would just look and read for me, um, Brother Nathan, Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 to 30. Verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Verse 30 and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I think that is very, very clear. Uh, and notice it comes after when? After the tribulation of those days. So he's coming back at the end of the tribulation. And of course, we'll pr- try to point out that he's coming up to set up his millennial kingdom. The other thing that uh, I think I mentioned last time is that the first human prophet, uh, in the Bible was Enoch. Right. And that first human prophet uh, prophesied that the Lord was coming back to judge the world, which is the second coming. You find that in um, the book of Jude. Um, the other thing is that the final book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And the final chapter in the in book of Revelation is chapter 22, verse 20. Our Lord said, He's coming. So not only in the, is the first prophet, human prophet, prophesies the Lord is coming, second coming, but also the Lord himself in the last very book asserts in the final chapter that he's coming to return. Uh, many, many times also you'll find in the book of Revelation, that final book of the Bible, seven times he says, I come quickly, or I will come as a thief in the night. Seven times that is repeated. As a matter of fact, three times in the last chapter, chapter 22 in verse 7, 12, and 20, he, he, we are told that he's coming quickly, he's coming to the thief in the night. So the believer can be absolutely sure um, that when it comes to the, the second coming, uh, that there should be no doubt in his mind or any believer's mind that the Lord is definitely going to return. Um, the, uh, you know, we don't, our Lord himself, for example, again in, his, in the Gospels, 50 different times he talks about uh, be watching for his, uh, his return, watching for his second coming. So I think when you take all of that body of evidence, it is very hard for anybody to to, uh, to gainsay or contradict uh, this biblical doctrine of the second coming. It is clearly taught in the Bible again and again and again, and there's so much support, evidence for it, that I think the, um, only an, an infidel or an unbeliever 
or maybe a modernist or liberal would, would doubt that, but the Bible is very, very explicit when it comes to this matter. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has already come in from Antigua. Thank you to the individual who sent it in. Pastor, why is it so difficult for a single mother with a few children to get into a relationship? Repeat that again. Pastor, why is it so difficult for a single mother mm-hmm. with a few children why is it so hard for her to get into a relationship? I am not too sure uh, why it's hard for her. I think it is hard maybe for a male to countenance the idea of going into a relationship with a person who already has children. Remember that God never designed uh, to carry children into a marriage. God designed that children would be a product of the marriage. And normally speaking, when a person uh, has children, um, it depends on how old the person is as well. For example, a child who, who is uh, older than seven uh, 80% of that child's character is already formed. Uh, it's a very difficult task to deal with a child who's after seven years old. So if you've got a child that is seven, maybe eight or nine, um, men who are aware of the difficulty of trying to train up children would be very reluctant to go into a relationship like that. Uh, for a woman, uh, I can see from her perspective, um, you know, most men, well, I don't use the word most men, but many men, um, uh, I am not too sure their capacity to accept a child who is not theirs. Now, women have a tendency to be better able to take a, f- a husband's children and treat them as their own, but a, lo- a lot of men, most men, generally speaking, find it difficult to accept another man's child as their own. they've got to support the child, etc., etc. So it creates chaos within a relationship. That is why we have to tell young ladies uh, in our churches that the wisest thing to do if you want a happy marriage is to keep yourself pure and keep yourself for that mate that you're going to get in the future. If you get involved in the morality and the child is a byproduct of it, it hinders your capacity to have a happy marriage in the future. And uh, I don't need to remind people as well that in in case the child is a a female, and uh, stepfathers are notorious for incestuous relationships with with, with, uh, children who are not their own. So I am saying to any parent who might be listening, any young ladies listening, that if you're really concerned about your future in terms of a successful marriage, the greatest thing you could ever do is to keep yourself pure and uh, seek a person who um, will love you and care for you and don't carry um, that um, extra people into the relationship because it was that's not God's design. And when we go against God's design, by the way, we always end up in some serious problems. Pastor, what advice would you have for, I mean, we're coming up on Valentine's Day here, for the young mother who says, I just got saved previous to being saved. I have two or three children, and I'm having trouble creating a relationship, finding a Christian young man who is willing to have a relationship with me and to marry me. Uh, what advice? Is there hope? Yeah, well, there's hope because let me just tell you, I married a woman with three, three, three children, so I could tell people that even though I'm giving this kind of advice, it doesn't mean I'm against those kind of relationships. But I would say to any woman who has children, period, that it is not so much falling in love with your Romeo, and that should be your focus. You need to find somebody who not only wants to uh, to marry you and to sleep with you, but somebody who's willing to make the sacrifice to care for your children. You just can't be concerned about your, your intimate relationship with the person. And uh, if that person is not accepting of the children and you, you get the feeling that it doesn't want the responsibility of taking care of the kids, I'm going to suggest to you that that's a person you're not to avoid. 
But there's hope. Um, when I met my, my wife, I met her after she had become a Christian. She already had three kids. I was just going into the ministry. It was a very difficult time. But I, looking back on my life, I don't have any other woman who could have married me. Mm. The things I've done and what I've done in terms of the ministry, what I've been willing to make sacrifice, I don't think really, in truth and fact, uh, most people would have been able to do that. She was just the right person for me, and I still feel that very strongly. She's my biggest asset. I was talking to somebody recently in connection with um, sickness and, and death, and I said, you know, if there's one person I would want at my side if it was be sick or dying, it was my wife. I don't mm. care who else comes, mm. but I wanted to be there. And uh, that's how meaningful she is to me. But I, uh, it's a difficult stage when you have young kids. But all I would say to you is that pray for a partner if you are not a person that's designed to be celibate. Uh, you've made a mistake. Life is not over. And uh, certainly God can bring somebody into your life. But what is important is not just romance. What's important is a person who loves you enough to be willing to sacrifice to help to bring those children up. If they don't have that interest, I would say to you, avoid it because the marriage is not going to last. Pastor, how important is it that two individuals be on the same spiritual wavelength when they go into a relationship? Well, if you want to have peace and harmony in your home, um, I suspect that if you've got two Christians, you're going to have to decide what church you're going to go to. Uh, what kind of um, atmosphere you're going to have within the home spiritual atmosphere. I would say to, to women, by the way, that if you don't find a man who is willing to lead you spiritually, uh, he will always be tagging along, and when children comes, that simply means he will not be the responsible father that he should be in a, in a spiritual sense. So uh, while you're dating, be assessing um, his life that he like to read the Bible? Does he like to pray with you? Does he like to have devotions with you at some times? Or what does he like to do? I think all of those are signals to you as to the spiritual level of the person. Uh, if you're going to different churches, that's something you need to settle. Generally speaking, the woman goes and follows the man because he's supposed to be the leader. Uh, but again, if you've got a person who's a Seventh-day Adventist, a person who's a Jehovah's Witness, and a person who's a, a, a Baptist, you've got war, you've got trouble there because the doctrines are so different. So I think it's important for both persons to at least see eye to eye. It doesn't mean you have to belong to the same denomination, but I think the same core doctrines that you believe in, I think those are fundamental for harmony within the home. You don't want to have all kinds of massive disputes on these matters. So I would I would say find a, a partner uh, who, th- who uh, pretty much has the same basic core values and the same basic biblical teaching and doctrine as yourself, and who have the same motivation and have the same goals, and who is really looking at a very serious relationship with God and wants to get involved in the Lord's ministry, not not necessarily full-time, but want to be engaged in some kind of uh, uh, spiritual ministry within the church. What if one person is a Christian, one person's not, but they're both willing to accept the other as they are? Well, Paul makes that clear in uh, Corinthians chapter 7, because there are people in, in Paul's day, and I suppose there are some people today who... Uh, want to use Christianity to jettison their partner. Uh, Maybe they got saved after they had married a person, and now that they're saved, their partner remains unsaved. The easiest thing in the world uh, to do is to think in your mind and rationalize, well, maybe the Lord didn't intend this person for me to get married to. And, uh, you know, you begin to um, have misgivings, and et cetera, et cetera. The Bible makes it clear that if the person that you're married to is not a Christian and they desire to stay, they want to stay, they want you have to stay within the relationship. However, if there is some thing that may be abuse, whether it be verbal or physical or whatever, 
Um, the Bible just gives you an occasion to separate, but it says if you separate, you need to come back together, but you can't separate and, and uh, remarry. Uh, so the person who is a Christian who is married to a non-Christian, as long as your partner is prepared to stay within the relationship within the marriage, you have no option as far as the Bible is concerned. You stay within the marriage, and you can be the human instrument of leading that person to Christ because that should be the ultimate goal uh, within the relationship. Is it okay for a non-Christian to date a Christian? Not recommended, period. Uh, and the Bible says that we should marry only people in the Lord. And if we're supposed to marry only people in the Lord, the common sense will tell you only date people, because you only marry people you date, generally. Uh, and there's so many dangers of a, a believer um, dating a person who's not a Christian. Uh, not only moral dangers, because they'll not really take you down a, a very uh, dark path, but also your testimony. Uh, it's very, very clear in the Scriptures that um, the believer must not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That only not only relates to religion and um, business, but also relates to um, a marital relationship. So it's not advisable that a believer should date an unsafe person. Thank you very much for those answers, Pastor. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday night is 7.48. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It's a live interactive call-in program, and we are here to answer your questions. They don't have to be specifically about the topic that we're covering tonight. We are talking tonight about Bible prophecy, but if you have a question about any topic, about what the Bible says or doesn't say, why it says it or doesn't say it, give us a call. The phone number is 1-268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text us at 1-268-782-1400. Five, four. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question from Antigua. Or if you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can comment your question beside the video feed. We are really honored that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join us on the program. And let me just encourage you to not just keep the program to yourself, but encourage others to tune in. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend, a co-worker. Maybe you've been talking to someone about Bible prophecy. Encourage them. Send them a WhatsApp right now. Say, hey, that's truth is on on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It'll be on for the next hour and 11 minutes. Tune in and learn what the Bible has to say about Bible prophecy. Pastor, the second coming of Christ, is it something physical or is it going to be spiritual, kind of like some of these religions or cults have taught? Well, I think if you are familiar with the background of both the um, JW and the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists had prophesied the Lord was coming back in 1833, and then they changed it to 1834. And then when he didn't return in 1833-1834, they had this, this guy uh, had this vision that he returned, but not literally, he returned spiritually, and he went from the holy place to the holy of holies in the heavens. And nobody can see that, so nobody knows about that. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, have said that the uh, Lord came back already, and he's reigning uh, from the Kingdom Hall, really within the, the headquarters, uh, Watchtower headquarters. All of these are false claims, and there's no basis for it whatsoever because the Bible is very, very clear that when our Lord returns, and there are certain factors that uh, will come into play. Number one, He's coming back personally. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse uh, 10 to 11, 
uh, when he left on the ascension, when he met with the disciples and spoke in regards, they wanted to know if he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time. Uh, he said it was not in their uh, purview to know about the when the kingdom would be set up. But then he, in Acts chapter 1, verse 10 uh, to 11, when he's ascended, the angel uttered certain words there that makes it very clear. Can you read that, please? Yeah. Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So notice that he's, he's going to come back in like manner. As, as he went up, he's going to come back. So he's coming back. This same Jesus is coming back. He's coming back personally. This is not Haley Selassie. This is not, uh, this is not uh, some uh, reincarnation of, of Christ. This same Jesus is coming back as he went up in the same manner he's coming back. So he comes back personally. Matthew, in, in Revelation 20, he said, Behold, I come quickly. So this is a personal return of Jesus Christ. He also comes back literally uh, because in so manner, as he went up, he's coming back. And, and, and that means that he went up literally. He's coming back literally. It's not a spiritual coming. It's not an invisible coming. It's not a symbolic coming. It's a literal coming. And then when you read Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 to 13, uh, which tells you uh, how he's coming back, that he's coming back literally. If you find it there in Revelation 19, 11, and 13, could you read that for me, please? And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Verse 13. Uh-huh. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. If you look now in verse number 6, he's also king of, king of kings and lord of lords. So here he's coming back, and he's coming back literally. Uh, if you read the chapter 19, previous chapter 19, it's when uh, the Babylon is destroyed, and the, 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 the whore is destroyed. And then you find that he comes back, and then he will take these. Uh, when he comes back, he destroys the false prophet, he destroys the Antichrist, and uh, his armies, and he casts them in lake of fire. You find that in verses uh, 19 and 20 of the same chapter. So he's coming back, not only personally, he's coming back literally. And then uh, he's coming back visibly. Look, look at Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 7. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I don't know there's a a, a more bold statement than that. that, I mean, that doesn't need any clarification whatsoever. It's, It's very, very lucid that every eye shall see him, and even those who pierce him. And, of course, the people that pierce him were the Romans and the ones that pierce him. And that's why we talk about the revival of the Roman Empire uh, during the tribulation period. But he's coming back, and he will be seen. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, is another good reference there. Matthew 24, verse 30. Matthew 24 and, and verse, verse 30. 30 says... 
And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, very, very, very clear. Uh, and then if you notice the verses we had before, this comes after the tribulation, after the great tribulation. Then this happens. But notice that uh, the nations of the earth would well, would mourn because of him and that they're going to see him. So is he's that not because on- they have regret? Well, this is not just regret. This is terror. Oh, okay. This is terror. I mean, this is this is like you having a, like he said, they that pierced him. You could imagine uh, the one that you are responsible for killing is now alive and coming back. I mean, the terror that is there because when the Lord's come back in his second coming, don't forget he's coming in this final phase to finish up the tribulation period. All the armies of the earth will be coming against Jerusalem. You find that in chapter 19 of Revelation. He comes back and he deals a final blow to man's arrogance and human uh, human power. And then he sets up his millennial kingdom. But notice he's coming back personally. He's coming back literally. He's coming back visibly. And then if you look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 7, he's coming back suddenly. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7. 27, 27. 27. 27. Uh, chapter 24? 24. Uh-huh. Chapter 24 and verse 27 says... For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so also the coming of the Son of Man be. Yeah, just like lightning, you don't expect it; it just comes from nowhere, Unexpected. uh, unexpectedly. And he's and, and then think about the the suddenness of that. And then that's why he keeps telling people, you don't know the hour. Watch, you don't know the hour. Now we're not watching for um, the rapture. Uh, and nobody knows when the rapture is going to occur, but he's saying that you're going to see when you see these things. Know that my near, my coming is, is is near, and that has to do with the second coming. Um, and then he's coming back dramatically. If you look at um, Matthew 24 verse 29 again, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall give her light, shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Well, these are the dramatic events that will take place before uh, he, he, when he, just he's about to come back. Uh, if you look at Luke chapter 21, verse 25 and 26 as well, you'll find reference to this dramatic entrance when he returns. Matthew 21, 25 to 26. Luke 21. 21, 25 and 26. All right. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts falling, failing them for fear and for looking after these things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Same kind of language. Uh, Luke um, kind of elaborates a little bit more, but same kind of language that we're going to have some real uh, cosmic signs within the ecological system, within the the cosmos as well. Uh, But notice this is the drama of his coming back. It's going to be a terrifying time uh, from humankind. And then if you look at Matthew 24, verse 30, and Mark 16, 27, Matthew 24:30. Okay. Matthew 24:30 reads, "And then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven." With power and great glory. He's coming back gloriously. That's the point I'm making here. It's going to be a stupendous uh, display of majesty and glory. And then in Mark chapter 16, verse 27. 
Mark 16. 27. 27. Uh, there's only 20 verses. Mark. Mark chapter 16. Okay, I must have a different uh, false reference there. Um, check and see what that is. The point I'm making there that in, there's a passage in Mark as well, uh, must have the wrong reference, where the same concept of his glorious return is mentioned, alluded to there. And I just want to point out he's coming back. And then he's coming back triumphantly because we read in Matthew chapter 19, verse 19 to 21. Would you read that for me, please? Chapter 19, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 19, verse 19 to 21. Revelation chapter 19, verses 20 and 19 19 to 21, 19. Okay. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh." That's the triumph, final triumph. All the armies be gathered against Jerusalem. The Messiah comes back in his glory. He defeats the army of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and uh, they're cast in the lake of fire, and then he will establish his millennial kingdom. But it's going to be a triumphant time. So he comes back personally, visibly, literally, suddenly, dramatically, gloriously, and triumphantly. That's how he comes back in all of his glory. So those are the specifics that are given about his uh, return. Uh, but I think the key thing here is that's going to be a literal, visible, personal return uh, that is sudden and dramatic, and he would display his glory and his triumphant over all his enemies. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And also for this program, we are also on Facebook Live. If you have a question, you can give us a call and be put live on the air at 1-268-462-7420. Or if you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Maybe you have a topic that you would like discussed on the program sometime. Send it to us via WhatsApp or text, or you can call and suggest it, and it'll definitely be taken into consideration. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.02. Pastor, we've been talking about Bible prophecy and specifically the return, the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is there anywhere in Scripture that tells us where he's going to return? What is uh, fascinating as you study Bible prophecy is that um, in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 9 to 12, uh, when he had his disciples and they're on the Mount of Olivet, uh, this is before he ascended, uh, we find that, um, that the promise is made that this same Jesus shall return, but they're on the Mount of Olivet. It's also interesting that in Matthew chapter 24, when he's giving what is called the Olivet Discourse, which is the final thing, he's on the Mount of Olivet giving all this prophetic utterances about what's going to happen in the end time, etc., etc. What is even staggering is when you look at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, uh, that when he comes back and he returns, 
the same mountain he descended from, he ascended from, the same mountain that he gave all this prophetic teaching from, uh, is the same mountain on which his feet shall stand. Look at Zechariah chapter 14, uh, verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove, be removed toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Now, if you interesting, Nathan, if you read uh, the first three verses of that um, passage, you'll see the context is dealing here with the same second coming and the day of wrath. Could you just read the first three verses? Yeah. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and the sp- thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the re- residue of the people shall n- not be cut off from the city. Verse 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And then you got the point where his feet actually stand to the Mount of Olive. See this context? The day of the Lord, this is when uh, the Antichrist will bring the armies against Jerusalem. Uh, Israel is going to suffer tremendous suffering in that time during the tribulation period. But then just as that is happening, he returns. And his foot stands where? Mount of, Mount of Olives. So, so it's very, very clear that his second coming. When you take all of these <coughs> biblical scriptures and dovetail them, uh, there is a touchdown point that he's coming back, and that is where in Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, uh, is prophesied in the prophetic writings. That's exactly where uh, he will make its entrance. I find it interesting, uh, if you were to stand on the Mount of Olives and look uh, toward Jerusalem, between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount is a, a valley, but as you come up out of the valley, toward the Temple Mount and the Eastern Gate, which I believe he's supposed to enter through the Muslims, they know that a high priest is not allowed to walk through a cemetery. And so as an insurance policy that he will not return through the Eastern Gate, the Eastern Gate is cemented full. But they have also built a cemetery outside of the Eastern Gate Uh for the Muslims uh, just as a, a precaution that uh, for because of course no high priest would ever want to walk through a cemetery where there's dead bodies. <laughs> you know the, the real contradiction of the Islamic faith is that they they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They believe in they don't believe he was he was crucified. They don't believe he was resurrected. But they do believe he's a prophet, and they do believe he's coming back. Yeah. That's the funny thing about it. I I can't sh- kind of get wrap my brain around that that they they could be. At the same time, trying to oppose its returning, as you said, by cementing, cementing the, the, the Eastern Gate. Uh, the anomaly of uh, the Muslim faith is, is just a shocker. Do you think the Muslim faith will play into the political situation in the end times? Well, I think it's already playing in place because the problem with the, you know, we said that you'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. I think that the whole world is going to blow up. Blame Jerusalem for the the unrest in the Middle East. They're going to seem as though the, the Jews become a scapegoat. It's always been a scapegoat, just like Hitler yeah. uh, was able to uh, create his Third Reich by claiming that the Jew was responsible for all the problems that Germany had and turned the whole nation against. I mean, these were intelligent, enlightened Europeans, probably the brightest people in Europe at that time. But he was able to turn a nation against Israel and made them the scapegoat, so that he was able to slaughter uh, six million. I mean, 
I think it's going to happen the same way that it, it's going to seem as though the Jew is incorrigible. They wouldn't surrender this. They, wouldn't, they don't understand that God has given to Israel that piece of real estate. That's theirs. It's the God of the universe who solemnly has given that real estate. And they're not going to surrender it. And I think that the time is coming where the problem is, is the world wants to prob- problem solve in the Middle East. Uh, even President Trump has just offered a solution where you connect Gaza. The with the West Bank, Bank and there's some some uh, underground tunnel that will collect these two people. The the the, uh, the um, Palestinians have rejected it, so I think that's that's going to happen. No doubt about that. And I think that they're already playing a part in the um, the whole Middle East crisis because behind all of the factions against Israel uh, is the the Iran. Really, they're actually um, pushing against uh, the Jew. Another interesting thing about the Mount of Olives, I've been told that the most if you are a proper Jew, uh-huh. a devout Jew, you are willing to pay for uh, the best burial place, and the best burial place is on the Mount of Olives, and their religious belief is that they will be the first to be resurrected uh, when Christ returns in the future. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, the Jew is a very religious people, as you know that, uh, but again... Uh, that would have to be the Orthodox Jew or some other oh, kind yeah, of Jew. Yes. Yeah, be, because, Not the secular. Yeah, but um, again, the, there's no doubt that the Jews are looking for the Messiah. Look at the, you know, you've seen it on the, the weeping wall where they're praying every day for the Messiah to come back. I mean, that's something that's going day after day because they're really praying for the Messiah to come back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the anomaly that they are so uh, steep in religion, especially the old Mosaic teaching and doctrine, and they're looking for this Messiah who's already come. And, of course, uh, the Lord is going to eventually move them from their unbelief, remove the scales from their eyes, and recognize that they crucified the Messiah, and then they're going to repent. But it's really pathetic to think that they are still praying that the Messiah would come when the Messiah has already come. But yeah. they're deeply religious people. Is religion the answer? Is that how you get close to God? No, you need a biblical faith. Look, religion is all of you got Hindus who are religious, you got Muslims who are religious, you got Taoists who are religious, you got Buddhists who are religious, you got um, the New Age movement people who are religious, you got even um, um, this this movement that um, the guy that stars um, Mission Impossible, son for his name. Oh, it's Scientology? Yeah, it's Scientology. All, religion has not been the issue. Man is incurably religious. We were made with a vacuum where we got to get in contact with some supernatural transcendent God. There's no question there. But that's not the question. The question is, all religions cannot be right. There has to be one religion that is right. There's only one way that leads to God. There's only one truth. Jesus said, uh, no man comes to the Father but by me. Uh, Peter said, there's no other name under heaven given among men where we must be saved. So religion is not the answer. Religion is man searching for God. Uh, Christianity is God finding man by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. So what men need is to put their faith and trust in Christ. Pastor, I was recently talking to an individual, and he said that he believes that there is a God. He doesn't know if we can communicate with him, but that he has hidden a little nugget of truth in every religion around the world. And that those the reason he did that was in case one religion got wiped out, there would still be the majority of the truth. How would you respond to that from a biblical worldview? Well, I just heard Nancy Pelosi said uh, in a speech responding to uh, to um, Trump's um, State of the Union address. Um, doesn't he know that every person has a spark of divinity in them? I smile. <laughs> 
because the Bible makes it quite clear that we have a spark of depravity in us, not the spark of divinity. We're made in the image of God. The truth of the matter is that man is depraved, man is sinful, the man needs the grace of God. But this idea that um, there's a little bit of truth uh, in every religion, there is a little bit of truth in every religion in a sense that every religion believes in some kind of a God. That's, there's no doubt about that. And every religion believes that there has to be some way to get to that God. It's either by works or by sacrifice or some other means. But um, religion is confusion. And the and the the architect behind this religious confusion is not God. God is not the author of confusion. The architect behind that is the infernal spirit called Satan, who is the tree, chief perpetrator of religion. It all started back at Babel, where they tried to build a tower to God, and God came down and scattered them. That's where idolatry started in Babylon, and that's where it's going to end in the book of Revelation. So uh, there's only one true faith that has been uh, handed down, and God has um, ex- explained this and revealed this in His Word, which is the Scripture. And so this idea that within every religion there's some fundamental truth, um, there's an element of truth in that, but in fact it's a distortion as well. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening to the panel. Uh, good evening, sir. Dr. Murphy, good night. Good night to you, sir. Panitan, good night. Good night. Good program. Thank you. Uh, Pastor, let me see if you can help me. I have a question there about save and loss. And I don't know if you can help me because I know in the Bible, the Bible tells you that anyone that has salvation, no one is able to talk him out of God's hand. Uh-huh. And there's another denomination telling you that you can save and loss if you save and you go back in the world. And you die in the scene that you, even if you are genuine Christian, genuine Christian, I mean, and you go back in the world and you happen that you die in your sin, will you live a salvation? Um, look, if a person is genuinely, authentically saved, they put their faith and trust in Christ, and uh, it's a true, genuine faith, uh, the Bible says that a person becomes justified. Uh, justification means that God declares the sinner uh, righteous before him and that God uh, imputes the right of Christ to the sinner's account. So that means when God deals with that person who is justified, uh, God sees that person as righteous as God's son. That's the whole biblical of justification by faith. The other thing, that when a person gets saved, they're taken out of the old Adam. They're no longer in the old Adam. They're now put in the new Adam, who is Christ. And then we're told that we're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put in, translated into the kingdom of light. So something miraculous and supernatural takes place when a person is genuinely, authentically saved. Uh, and the Bible makes it quite clear that he which has begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the believer is eternally saved uh, as far as uh, God is concerned positionally. A believer can backslide, a believer can go back, uh, and a believer can find himself away from God. That doesn't mean the believer loses his salvation. If that were true, by the way, why would there be uh, a need for rewards and why would there be a need for chastening God only chastens people who belong to him his children you read that in Hebrews chapter 12 so when a believer goes away from God uh, as a father he does exactly what a father does to a son he has to chasten that son and one of the clearest evidence that a person is, is saved when they're in a backslidden state is that there's divine chastening now the Bible says there's no chastening uh, and that person continues to live in sin and there's no divine chastening the Bible says it's a person not a son he's a bastard because as long as he belongs to God, God is going to chasten that believer to bring him back uh, within the fold. If that believer continues in rebellion, God has a way of dealing with that believer. 
Uh, it is called premature death. There's a sin unto death. God can remove him uh, early, uh, etc. But as long as he is truly saved and he's put his faith and trust in Christ and genuinely have faith and trust in Christ, um, he is eternally secure. And his backsliding does not mean that he forfeits his salvation. If that were true, by the way, uh, think of people like um, Solomon. Uh, Solomon in his old age uh, turned away from God and, and worshipped idols. Uh, think of David in his old age as well, uh, got away from the Lord. Uh, and, and clearly it is not one of those characters that you would say that are lost. So clearly a believer, um, even though he might fall, he's still in a safe state. I've I been mean, saying that same topic with Lord on TV, may tell me that, tell him that if Lord was not a righteous man, God wouldn't tell Abraham if he could find 10. Abraham couldn't find 10. Uh-huh. So if Lord was not in the bucket of righteous, God wouldn't be disputing that if Abraham. So uh-huh. God spared Lord because Lord was a righteous man. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's another good example. For example, I don't anybody who reads the story of Lot would ever get any inkling that this man had any kind of real saving faith. But yet when you read the account that's given in the book of um, Genesis and then you read the account that's given in, in Jude, uh, 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 etc., you discover that um, here was a man that is actually in Sodom, uh, He's actually making a proposition that he surrenders his, his daughters uh, to the men of Sodom to for them to do gang rape of his daughters, protect the angels. I mean, one wonders how can a man have that kind of uh, moral conception and, and have such little interest in his own daughters. So you never get the impression, but yet we, when we come later, we discover that while living in Sodom, uh, it vexed his holy conversations. So, so he felt uneasy in Sodom. And, and he remained in Sodom, but he was delivered out of Sodom ultimately. Uh, but we would not have known uh, by any inclination that Lot was a righteous man unless we were told that in the New Testament. Uh, he gave no real indication that he was a righteous man. But clearly he was, and even though he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, he was still c- converted. Now clearly he did not engage in the activity in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's very obvious that um, um, he found their requests repulsive. Uh, so, but people are like that. They're, they're, they're people who get away from the Lord and, and get themselves into trouble. But that doesn't mean that they're not saved. It's like your child. You, your child will get away from you and make some massive mistakes in life. But he's your child. Uh, yeah. He doesn't stop being your child because he misbehaves and he gets himself into trouble. That's the yeah. time he really needs you when you're when he gets into trouble as his father. And you're going to try to help as much as possible. Okay. But uh, what about first um, coming from chapter five? I believe. Tell you when the young man is living in fornication and Paul telling him, beginning of the devil. Yeah. Well, well, how would you explain that? How would what? Oh, how would you explain that? Well, there's, there's, no, there's, no, way, there's no way to explain it. It's, it's straight there. Here's a young man living with incest, and the, the incestuous relationship relates to his, his own stepmother. And while he's in the ch- in the church, by the way, the believers are boasting. I just dealt with that on Sunday night. I mean, they're boasting. They're proud. They're they actually, uh, the, 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 Paul said, you're puffed up. I can't believe. Take the young man and deal with the young man. Paul said, I, I'm not even there in, in body, but I'm absent in my spirit. I say to put the young man outside the church. The church was refusing to discipline a young man that was living in flagrant, open public sin. And Paul says to them, put him outside that his body might be destroyed, 
but that his spirit might be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. That gives you an idea, by the way, that here's a man committing one of the real gross sins, but he's in Paul's sight, his body, the devil will destroy his body, but his soul will be saved in Jesus Christ. So he's still saved. See, that's an amazing passage that this believer living such an immoral life, but yet he's, con- he's saved, but uh, put him outside the church where he doesn't have the protection of the body of Christ. Uh, the, the, the devil is able to uh, destroy his body. And this, by the way, is a strong emphasis on some, when we need to put discipline in the church. Now, it's a difference. The person commits a sin, and they're repentant, and they're really sorry. That's something different. But you've got a person living continuous in sin and doing nothing about it. Then you have to do something about it. This is not a one-time offense you're talking about. You're talking about a person who's repeatedly living in this state, and it's publicly uh, before everybody, and the church is acting as though it's the greatest thing and they're so tolerant and they're so loving and they're not prepared to come down and, and put some pressure on this young man to change. Paul said, excommunicate him, let the devil deal with him, his body be destroyed, but his spirit be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. So if there was any doubt that a person can get away from the Lord and get involved in gross sin and still be saved, that's a great passage that would indicate clearly that he can be saved. Pastor, that that verse... Yeah. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much for that question. We appreciate it. Thank you for your call. That verse, uh, I'll read it. It says, To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now that verse could almost be read that that the spirit may be saved, that if they don't deliver his body for Satan to destroy it, that his spirit wouldn't be saved. Is that what it's saying? No, I don't think it means that. I just think that Paul is looking at it very literally that, look, this young man clearly is bent on uh, continuing in this, this direction. Uh, the church, of, of course, in Corinth was so liberal and so um, um, so much wrong in the church in itself. They're not dealing with the matter of discipline. And I think I think the proper thing there is that Paul is saying, look, let this guy out of the church if he doesn't repent, his body may be destroyed by the enemy. But if his body is destroyed, his soul is going to be saved in the day of Jesus. That's what I was thinking. The other thing, by the way, when you come to Corinthians chapter 2, apparently the young man had repented. And the church was now reluctant to receive him back into the church. And Paul said, listen, uh, you need to receive him back and show him love because if you don't receive him back now, he goes into despair and despondency, and this might lead to graver sin. So Paul is asking to, to, to deal with the discipline. When the young man repents, Paul is saying, let him be restored. Pastor, we've got a lot of questions coming in from sure. listeners tonight. Uh, this is a question in relation to Revelation chapter 16, verses 19 through 21, specifically verse 20, but I'll read these three verses for context. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the city of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance of God to give unto her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were were not found. And verse 21 goes on to talk about hail uh, coming out of the sky. Verse 20 is the question, and every island fled away, and some uh, uh, translation stated as, and every island disappeared. What is being taught by that? Does that mean that the sea level is going to rise and Antigua will be no more? <laughs> what, what I think is going to happen, you remember the tribulation period, by the time it's all over, two-thirds of humanity is gone, wiped off the map, mm-hmm. right? And I do believe that when they talk, there'll be a great earthquake 
to be come to that at some point in time, a massive earthquake. I would not be surprised is that that is as a matter of fact it's going to all be heard around the world this earthquake that will take place the Bible talks about. Mm. I believe that all the, we are already seeing what a tsunami can do. Yeah. Right. And I think that in the tribulation period. Uh, when God begins to deal with all these cataclysmic judgments in such great severity, and they've got earthquakes and this, I think, I think literally that's what it means. I really think that these small islands will not be able to survive. That's why I said, if you read the book of Revelation, it said, but by the time it is all over, two-thirds of humanity will be, will be gone. That's how severe this judgment is going to be. Uh, so I, I don't want to, um, to try to allegorize what is there. Uh, it's a literal going to happen, and uh, the Bible says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So I think these small islands, including this one and, and Barbados, will disappear if the tribulation would, would occur. In well, we will we will not be here, of course. But that is a terror that the Bible talks about, and that's why you can say. Remember, I also said that one third of the sea can be turned into blood. Yeah. One third of all the drinking water. It'll be turning to blood, and then there's a, after that, there's another one third. So by the time it's all over, two thirds have gone, basically. Uh, that's why there has never been, nor will there ever be, a time like this. And that's why we are warned, flee the wrath to come. In relation to the question uh, earlier about eternal security, let me just encourage you, if you are listening and you have questions about eternal security, Pastor Murphy's program, Sermons of Grace, on Sunday nights at 8.15 p.m., the topic that he's covering right now or the passages that are covering on that program, Sermons of Grace, is all about eternal security. So tune in this Sunday night at 8.15 p.m. Pastor, we have text messages coming out of uh, St. Kitts from a listener. Uh, Good night, Pastor. Please tell me what is meant by the kingdom of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. And I believe this is in re- relation to Revelation 11:15 which says and the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever well again that is a great um uh reminds me of uh was it is it Hayden's song uh the messiah yeah, the Messiah, uh, uh, Bach, Hand, handles uh, handle song. Yeah, yeah. Bach, Bach, yeah. Again, that's where he get that from. He should reign forever and ever. This talks about the fact that the tribulation period by Temit is all over. That humanity and the human reign of man and the, all the kings of this world uh, will be completely conquered, and Christ would become supreme ruler of the universe. So that's all it's about. That the, 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 it's an anticipation. That at the end of the tribulation, uh, he now takes charge and uh, he takes over the entire universe, takes over the all the kings of this earth. He begins to rule, as we'll talk about in the millennial kingdom. So it, it's, it's, that's what it's talking about. He will ultimately uh, take over planet Earth on his return, and he will set up his millennial kingdom, which would reign for a thousand years. Second question is in relation to First Corinthians chapter seven and verse thirty-six, which says. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. What is meant by pass the flower of her age? Her time of marital, uh, ready for marriage, puberty, uh, basically those talking about uh, the, the age of marriage. Uh, of course, if you know the situation there in Corinth, 
um, you know, it's a little, little bit different than we are today. The father had tremendous control on his daughter, and as you know, some of these marriages were already made between different family members and, and different uh, individuals before the person was uh, sometimes um, at the age of maturity. These are contractual marriages. Uh, and then, uh, so the, the gentleman there, as mentioned, um, you know, he's looking at the situation. He feels that the girl is at the age now where she's maritable, uh, and uh, he has to make a decision along that line. But that was the father's power over the life of the young lady in respect to her, her marital uh, marital issues. And should a father, Christian father, in this day and age have that authority over his daughter? Well, I would say to every uh, person who has a father, a godly father, I would say to you that um, if your father is against your marriage, my recommendation, we try to win him as much as possible in favor of the marriage if you can. But I would not advise anybody, if I have a real godly father, to go against if he really has some good, just reasons for feeling that this this person is not the suitable person, I would recommend that the person uh, uh, wait and uh, see if somehow providentially God would change that. But I think your parents are there to guide you, and I think your parents have much more wisdom than you are. And I would believe that your parents want the best for you, and they have a sixth sense. And I'd be very, very cautious of anybody going into marriage where the godly parents are opposed to that marriage, I think that uh, it's not a wise thing to do. And let me just say something as well. Remember that you're always married, you're going into a family. Don't ever forget, you're not married an individual, you're married into a family. And even though um, the person, you might be a singular person you're marrying, a lot has to do with that person's family background and the relationship that could be between your family and their family. And you want that when you have uh, children, uh, you know, uh, grandchildren, grandparents could help you, etc., etc. So it's not a wise thing to go against your peer. And again, I repeat the word, a godly parent who you know want, has your best interest in view and who is deeply concerned for your future, I would not advise to push against their counsel and advice and go into marriage if they are very strong that this is not the person for you. Pastor, what is human government and where can I find it in the Bible? What is human government? Mm-hmm. Well, if you look in uh, Romans chapter 13, uh, we are told that God established government and that the government is a servant of God. But human government was established, um, well, generally speaking, go back to Genesis chapter 9, people use that, where it says, um, he that sheddeth man's blood by man shall be shed. Uh, it believed that that's the time that man is given the authority to take the um, the amount of capital punishment, which is the premier um, power that a government has to take life. That's when it's believed that human government was established. But you come to Corinthians, sorry, Romans chapter 13, uh, it's very, very clear that the Bible talks about the believer's responsibility in relation to government, and that government has established by God to punish the evil and the wicked, and that we ought to submit to government, and we ought to pay our taxes, we ought to pay. Uh, be, as long as government doesn't do something or make us want to do something contrary to Scripture, uh, we have a right uh, to obey that government. And another text question coming in. By the way, um, Nathan, we will be at some juncture during one of these programs. I I do want to cover human government, uh, Matthew, I mean, uh, Romans chapter 13. So we will come to that at some point in time in the future to dealing with government, the believers' responsibility to government. And hopefully we'll get into the the idea a little bit about politics. Not I want to deal with politics, but should a believer vote and all of those type of things we'll get into at some point in time. And before we get into that in more depth, let me just mention that last September, 
November or September of 2018, uh, Pastor did a program on government and Christians. Uh, if you are interested in listening to that, you can go to uh, the internet, uh, do a Google search for That's Truth podcast, and then look for episode number 36, and you will find some preliminary information on that topic. Pastor, we have another question that has come in. Uh, will the world end? I know sometimes we pray the world without end, but uh, it, it's very, very clear that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Um, Peter, in the book of Second Peter, uh, says that the world is not going to be destroyed by a flood again, but it, it's going to be burnt up. So at some juncture, in some time in the future, we're going to have a completely new earth and a new heaven and a new earth. So it comes to an end in, in the sense that God's program comes to completion, uh, which would be the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, after the millennial kingdom discovered the final rebellion, and then God brings about the eternal state. And we are told that that eternal state involves a new heaven and a new earth. So the earth comes to an end in that sense. Pastor, we have a question coming out of the state of Georgia in the United States. Good evening. I would greatly appreciate Pastor's comments on the servant who hid his talents. Some pastors preach this servant is a do-nothing Christian who only loses his heavenly reward. Others preach this servant is a tear or a goat who is cast into hell. Thank you and God bless. Could I uh, not try to avoid um, answering it directly on the on the on the on the radio? Uh, I want to do a better job on it. I know the parable, and I would like to just study it a little bit more to give a more definitive answer rather than rush to an answer this evening. Uh, generally speaking, I would I would I would say that in a case like that, that's not a person who is lost. Um, that's a person who, instead of using his talent, um, he. Uh, fails to use it. As a result, he's judged by God, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, and he forfeits his reward. Uh, if I remember that parable fairly correctly, uh, that's the interpretation. But I just want to be able to uh, go into it again, look at it again, and just not just give you a quick answer off my head without doing a further study on it. So I will I will follow it up and uh, hopefully give you a better answer next time. But my general interpretation is that that's a, a person who uh, uh, misuses his gift or hides his gift and then he forfeits his reward in the end. You're listening to That's Truth, and if you've been listening very long at all, you realize this is an interactive call-in program, and we are excited to have you listening tonight. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air. The phone number is 268-462-7420. WhatsApp or text your question to 268 782 one four five four, or you can comment your question on Facebook Live under the video feed, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy. Pastor, is there anything? Um, we were talking about the the return of Jesus Christ, and uh, specifically where He will return. Are there any other passages that you'd like to mention? In relation to that, or do you want to move on to another question? No, I think that, that I, I thought that one was interesting because of the fact that um, that's where he went up, the Mount of Olives, and then in Matthew 24, he's given all this um, uh, discourse on the future. It's on the Mount of Olives, and yet uh, Zechariah points out very clearly that when he returns, uh, his feet will stand in the Mount of Olives. I just thought that was 
uh, not mere coincidental. I just think that this was part of his uh, entire plan. What Do we know what he's going to do when he does return? Yeah, the, the Bible tells us several things that he's going to do at his return. Um, for one, he's going to defeat the Antichrist. We see that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 19 to 21. Uh, another interesting verse, if you can look at that, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, 8. Uh, Nathan, can you read that? Uh, Revelation or Second Thessalonians? No, Second Thessalonians 2, 8. We read Revelation 19 already, but let's look at Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. 2 verse 8 says, And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with brightness of his coming. Again, I mean, we read Revelation 19, that's exactly what happens when he comes back. So the first thing he's going to do, he's going to defeat the armies of the Antichrist, and he will defeat uh, their kingdom and uh, deal with this, this rebellion that man has established and, and choosing this pseudo-substitute um, Christ, he's going to defeat it. The second thing he's going to do, he's going to have to regather the scattered faithful in Israel who during the tribulation people are going to be scattered. And when he comes back, the Bible says he's going to gather them again. Uh, if you look at um, Zechariah 14, verse 1 and 2. Zechariah uh, 14, verse 1 and 2. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and the spoil shall be divided in the midst of the... For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. That gives you an idea what's going to happen. So the city is going to be taken, the Jews are going to be scattered. There's another passage we looked at last week where it says that uh, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed. Uh, but there's going to be a scattering. If you look also at Matthew 24, they have reference to this scattering that will take place as well. So he's going to have to, when he comes back, uh, he's going to have to regather them. But look at Matthew 24, verse 15 to 21. Matthew 24. All right. Matthew 24, verse 15 to 21. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop come down and take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field turn back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor shall ever be. But notice there that there's going to be a scattering. He said, you know, when you see the desolation, uh, abomination of desolation, which Daniel talks about, Daniel chapter 11, this is when the Antichrist is going to set up his image in the temple. We talk about that in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. When the Jews begin to see that, they'll be they were, that they were deceived. They signed a peace pact with, uh, with the Antichrist for seven years, and now in the midst of the tribulation period, he shows his colors, he breaks the covenant, he establishes image in the, in, the, in, the, in the temple, claiming that he is God, and now the terror begins, and the Jews are told to run and escape. Uh, so they are going to be scattered, and when he returns, he's going to regather them. Look at... Um, 
Matthew, we're gathering. Look at uh, Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send the angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Again, remember uh, Paul talked about election according to the grace in in, uh, Romans chapter 26 about Israel having a remnant. This is the, the remnant that will be scattered, that now will be sought and regathered as he's about to start his millennial kingdom. If you look at uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 11 as well, verse 9 to 16, Isaiah 11, it talks about this regathering as well. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 9, 9 to 16, 16 says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain." For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an sign of the people. It, to it shall be the Gentiles, shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Sinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. They envy also Ephraim shall depart. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly out upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Verse 15. Yeah, you don't have to go through the whole. All, all, all the sin is going to gather the second time. The final phase is bringing, it, bringing back the, they're scattered. And they've been, uh, because of the tribulation, they're just scattered all over the place. And now he's regathering them. Um, one other f- passage you can look for is Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 25 to 29. And then we'll, we'll move on to it, the next point. Ezekiel thirty nine twenty five to twenty nine. Ezekiel twenty nine. Yeah, Ezekiel thirty nine. Thirty nine. Thirty nine. Thirty nine. Ezekiel thirty nine verses twenty five to twenty nine. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob. And have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name. After that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses, uh, after that they have borne their shame and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid. 
When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the midst of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them onto their land and have left none of them any more there. Verse 29, Neither will I hide my face any more from them. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord That's God. The, the point there is he's going to regather uh, these people. And when he comes back, uh, that is not only he's going to deal with the Antichrist, but because of the the um, the massacre uh, that's perpetrated against the Jews and the, the great holocaust that's going to come, they're going to escape to hide. And now he's come back. He's going to regather them. So not only is he going to destroy the Antichrist, he's going to have to uh, regather it. And then... He's going to judge the surviving Gentile nations when he returns. You can find that in um, uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 and 46. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Uh, what other verse? No, read down to 46. Oh, 246, okay. Mm. And before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we any hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee yeah Nathan I think we can stop there on that one because the, the point is here that um, when the son of man comes uh, in his glory with the holy angels then he will gather all the nations so this is one of the things that he's going to do he's going to judge the Gentile nations and he is going to reward them according to their treatment of his people Israel during the tribulation period, when the Antichrist is trying to obliterate and destroy Israel and to terminate the Jews and bring about the final solution, the Jews are going to need protection and they're going to scatter to hide from the Antichrist. The nations that respond favorably to Israel during the tribulation period, they're going to be rewarded and go into the kingdom. That's what he's talking about here. But the nations are going to be judged. Those on the right and those on the left. Those that are on the right will go into the kingdom. Those on the left are not going into the kingdom. So that is part of his program when he returns. But notice it's when he comes back in all of his glory. That's his second coming. This is when they get the separation of the nations in respect to the treatment of Israel. The other thing that um, if you look at um, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33 to 38, you'll also find that he's also going to judge the surviving Jews. And um, you find that in um, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33 to 38. All right. 
Ezekiel yep. 20. And as I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with the fury outpoured, I will rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out from the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury outpoured. Uh, Pastor, we have a caller that's just called in. Okay, let's uh, take that. Nathan from Nevis, thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening. Good evening. Good to hear your voice. Yes. Uh, I would like to know, who is Michael? Is he an angel? Uh, who, who is he? Well, it's, it's, it's clear that Michael is the archangel, and he is the one that protects Israel. you find that in the book of Daniel. Uh, so he's an angel. The, the JW say that he is, that Christ uh, was Michael the archangel before he came to earth. But there's no biblical basis for that. Uh, clearly, the, the Bible d- defines him and, and uh, points out that he is the Michael the archangel, who is the main protector of Israel. If you look in the book of um, um, Daniel. Daniel, you'll find that it's mentioned there. Okay. It, it appears twice. Right, but th- so there's and a. It appears uh, once in the Revelation. Yeah, Revelation 12, I think it is. Yeah. But uh, that's, the, that's the Bible definition. He's not Christ, he's, he's Michael the Archangel. I mean, the Bible, there can't be anything plainer than that. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you read. Um, if you read Hebrews chapter uh, 1, when it's talking about Christ, who he is, mm-hmm. uh, it is said, Which of the angels did he ever say to him, Thou art my son, this day has thou begotten me? So Christ yeah. is not an angel, right? But those that claim that Michael the archangel was, uh, Christ was Michael the archangel, uh, there's no biblical warrant for that whatsoever. And that's what the Jehovah's Witness believe, by the way. Yeah, so, I know that's what they believe. Yeah, but but the Bible is clear. You've got the passage right there, man, so you know exactly what the Bible is saying. I think in Hebrews, the Bible says he took not on the the, the nature of angels. Right, right. It took on the, angel, the nature of a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, correct. You're, you're on the ball. Okay. Okay, sir. Have a good night. You good too, program. sir. God bless. <coughs> Thank you very much for your question. <coughs> Thank you for your call. We trust that you're receiving a good signal there in Nevis. Uh, Pastor, remind me again the Yeah, passage. Ezekiel 20, verse 33 to 38. <clears throat> okay. Um, I think you started reading it, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I think I, I'll pick back up at verse 35. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people. There will I plead with you face to face, like as I pled with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I plead with you, saith the Lord God, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out of from among you the rebels, them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So the same way he separates the Gentile nations to decide who goes into the kingdom. Here he's talking about his people, he's judging his people, and he said face to face. We're going to have a, we're going to have a conversation, we're going to decide, we'll just take the rebels out. The rebels will be excluded from going into the kingdom. So that's another thing that he's going to do. And then the other thing that the Bible tells us he's going to do, he's going to resurrect the believers of the tribulation period. Look at Daniel chapter, sorry, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 to 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded 
for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Guess the millennial believers, um, the, the tribulation believers who've gone through the tribulation, now uh, the Lord has defeated the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, they're cast in the lake of fire, and now what does he do? He resurrects those who are, came through the tribulation period who died, and they go into the, the kingdom called the millennial kingdom. We'll come to that shortly, but notice that he's going to resurrect the tribulation saints. Daniel talks about this again in Daniel chapter 12, verse. You have to look there, Daniel 12, verse 1 to 4. He talks about the resurrection around the same period. Uh, etc. The fifth thing he's going to do, of course, he's going to bind Satan. Uh, chapter 20, you're in chapter 20 uh, of Revelation. Look at verse 1 to verse number 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And I laid on hold, the, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season again this is what he does after this when he comes to the second coming he defeats the the beast the false prophet uh, he binds satan for a thousand years that means that satan has no access to tent man and that will go well for a thousand years, but at the end of the thousand years, he's released, and he goes in tents, man, and once again, he stirs at the final rebellion, which is called Mag- uh, Gog and Magog, which you find in the book of Revelation. So mm-hmm. Satan is going to be bound, and the reason why he's bound is because he's bound so that the millennial kingdom will be established, and that's the sixth thing he's going to do. He will set up uh, his kingdom, which is called the millennial kingdom. Is Satan a physical being that actually you can put your hands on if he's going to be bound with a chain? Well, he's a spiritual being, but what the, the, the expression that's used there, bound with a chain, means he's going to be confined. Okay, right. That's what it means. Uh, remember that Revelation is a pictorial book, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's what we got. It's like a picture book of what's going to happen. Uh, and there are what do you call it the, I, mean, I mentioned the ap- uh, um, apocalyptic language of the Bible and the book of Ezekiel uh, the book of Zechariah it always used pictorial uh, um, imagery to portray prophetic truth but how do I as a Christian know what is pictorial and what is literal again that, that goes back to understanding biblical interpretation I mean there are some passages of scripture that are poetic like any poetic book that you read that has poetry, you know that the language is a lot of literary devices, you have personifications, you have metonymy, synecdoche, uh, you've got similes, you've got metaphors, you've got proverbs, what are those? Again, you have to be, when you're dealing with the, the, the kind of literature in the Bible, the kind of genre, you've got to know if it's a historic, historically dealing deal with prophecy, uh, are you dealing with poetry, and each one of those parables, again, uh, when you're interpreting parables, there are certain principles that apply to parables that don't apply to uh, something historical. So a lot has to do when you interpret the Bible to understand which genre you're dealing with and what are the principles that apply to that genre. Otherwise, you end up in total confusion. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have about seven minutes left in the program, so if you have a question, go ahead and send it in quickly. Uh, Pastor, you were talking about what Christ will do when he returns, yeah, and you I mentioned say, the millennial kingdom. kingdom. Interesting here, uh, if you look at um, Luke chapter 1, by the way, verse 32 and 33, uh, you'll discover there that 
uh, a promise is made in relation to Christ that he's going to have to set up the kingdom of David. And this is the kingdom that will be set up. Uh, Luke 1, 32 to 33. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom shall be, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Yeah, there's a kingdom that is going to come, and that's been promised from the time Christ was born, that he will one day sit on the throne of David. Um, what we will try to show you that the millennial kingdom is going to be the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to Israel, both in the Abrahamic covenant, in the Davidic covenant, and also in the new new covenant. There are promises that God made to Israel that were uh, non unconditional, that were eternal, and that are literal, that has to be fulfilled, that were never fulfilled. For example, the land of Israel. Israel has never possessed the real estate that God promised to her. God promised Israel from the river Nile up to the river Euphrates. That has never happened. And that's an unconditional eternal covenant. In the millennial kingdom, that will come to pass. God has never made a promise yet that he will not keep. And remember that these promises are unilateral, unconditional, eternal promises that God made to Israel. It didn't matter uh, what Israel did. These are promises made to their fathers that will be fulfilled. And the millennial, that's why the millennial kingdom is so important. If the millennial kingdom does not occur, it means that God has made promises that were unconditional, eternal, um, that has never been fulfilled. And that cannot be. And that's why we take the Bible very literally and take the prophetic writings very literally that there is going to be an earthly kingdom and Christ will reign from Jerusalem as is promised in Scripture. If you look at Matthew 19.28, uh, Nathan, we're coming up now to the close of the program, Matthew 19.28. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 yeah. says... And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration with the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. Ye also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Very, very clear that there's going to be the twelve tribes uh, in the time of uh, renovation, the time of restoration. This is the millennial kingdom. God put a curse on planet Earth in five different areas. That curse is going to be removed. And the prophetic writings are talking about the paradise is going to return, Edenic paradise, uh, what man calls utopia that man has been trying to establish and has just been frustrated because man can't bring it about. Man, as a result of his sin, lost Eden and lost paradise. Man cannot restore that. Only God can restore that. And the prophetic writings are very, very clear that the day is coming when God once again will fulfill all of his promise to the nation of Israel. And uh, he mentions here that they that followed him, that's his disciples, will sit on the 12 thrones judging the nation of Israel. They will be part of the millennial rule. This is as clear as, as light is that the Bible promises, makes that kind of a promise. Pastor, we just had a question come in, and I'm going to try and read the verses that it relates to and then ask you the question. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 5 uh, can you please explain, and I'll read the verses. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be an Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, 
unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. In verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Can you please explain those verses? And the reason I ask is, there are those who preach that if we cannot speak in tongues, you have not received the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a situation. Remember, the book of Acts is a, a transitional book. Let me explain what I mean by that. Clearly, these people that Paul met had uh, heard John, and uh, John's preaching was the baptism of, of repentance. Uh, so what did they, they did exactly what John uh, told him to do, and that is they were baptized for repentance. Uh, they had not come to the full knowledge that the Spirit had come, and they did not know what Christian baptism was. And uh, when Paul met them, Paul clarified that matter. And being baptized, <laughs> they received the Spirit. But notice that they did not um, speak in tongues. And if they did speak in tongues, it's not an indication that the two follow. The important thing is here that Paul was clarifying the, the Christian baptism opposed to John baptism. I'll deal with this next time. I don't have the time to do it right now because the program is about to close. Thank you very much for all the questions that came in tonight. Lots of great interaction. That's why we're here. And we will pick up the question next week right where we left off. Have a great night. Keep your radio dial tuned to CRL. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.